How's it going? Hopefully well. It's kind of fun. We got Jerusalem here. I'd love to preach in Jerusalem. And if you haven't been there, their falafel is fantastic. So I feel like we're missing the smell of like falafel wafting in here. That's the only thing we're missing. We will have a bake sale after though. So there won't be falafel, but there will be sweets. Uh, anyways, good morning. My name is Brendan, as Jeremy said. It's good to be here with you. If you're joining us online, welcome. Uh, our sermon this morning will be the third sermon in our summer series on Old Testament characters. Pastor Jeremy opened us up two weeks ago with Abraham and Sarah, Pastor Paul last week with, uh, with Isaac, and today we get to Jacob, that heel-grabbing deceiver of a man who fights his whole life for a blessing that God had already promised him before he was born. And our message this morning is going to focus around this one main idea, which is this. God has promised us and given us his blessing. Therefore, we don't need to fight for it. God has promised and given us his blessing. Therefore, we don't need to fight for it. Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 6 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. All right, notice he has blessed us through Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing. God has chosen us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Don't get so um, wrapped into the word predestination. Simply think about before God created the world, he had a plan to adopt you. All right, it wasn't like he was grudgingly like, oh man, I'm gonna, have to, I'm gonna have to adopt Tom someday. What am I thinking? It says, no, in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, he's gonna adopt you. All right, he's freely given his love, okay? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, Jesus, for us. We know we have been blessed by God, so here's the question. Why then do we keep looking for blessing elsewhere? We go about looking for validation in success, money, shiny things, romantic relationships, entertainment, recreation. Even in our goodness and service, we look for validation and blessing in others. And this is our story, this tension between living out of God's blessing and grasping to earn it on our own. And this is Jacob's story. He's a man with an inner vacuum, an inner emptiness, desperate for affirmation, success, blessing, and so on. Today we will be focusing on Genesis 32, but I'm going to give us a summary of the story up until that point. Jacob's story begins with Abraham, and God promises Abraham and his descendants that he's going to bless the world through his family. And through Abraham's descendants, the Savior is going to come. And we learn in Genesis 25 that Jacob is going to be the one that this line will be carried through. But we also learn that even in the womb, Jacob begins wrestling with his twin brother. And as they are born, Esau comes first and Jacob's grasping his heel. It's where his name comes from. Esau was the firstborn. And in that culture, he had the lion's share of the inheritance and the blessing. Jacob was second, but wanted nothing more to be first. So what does he do? He swindles Esau out of his birthright, and he fools his blind father into getting the firstborn's blessing. He steals it. 
naturally. His brother's furious, and Jacob has to run for his life to his mother's side of the family far away. It's a long journey, and on his way, God meets him in the famous dream at Bethel, the stairway to heaven. And here, God promises Jacob that he will be with him and watch over him everywhere he goes, and God reinstates the promise he gave to Abraham, that all people on earth will be blessed through his offspring. What a promise. God gives a relational, covenantal promise to Jacob, but Jacob, he seems to have a hard time with relationships. He thinks more in terms of contracts. God says, I will do this. There's no if clauses. Jacob love, he likes the if clauses. And Jacob says, God, if you do this, then the God of my fathers will be my God. We don't see the faith of Abraham here. Jacob is willing to manipulate anyone, man or God, if it will work out to his advantage. Jacob carries on. He finds his uncle Laban and he falls in love with his daughter and offers a ridiculous bride price for the beautiful Rachel. Seven years of labor. But as chapter 29 tells us, seven years only seem like a few days to Jacob. He's so in love. Yet, at the end of the seven years, he goes to Laban. He demands to have his wife so that he can sleep with her. The contract is up. I want my payment, and it sounds a lot more like lust than love at this point. The wedding feast ensues, and at the end of the night, Jacob goes to bed with his bride, only to find out in the morning that Laban had tricked him and given him his older daughter Leah, who's not as beautiful and apparently generally unwanted, certainly not by Jacob or her father. He wakes up to Leah, not Rachel. Okay, side note here, Jacob works his tail off for seven years to marry Rachel, and when he goes to bed, he doesn't realize it's not her? How much wine did Jacob drink that night? I can't imagine this scenario, it's ludicrous. Anyways, Jacob is furious at Laban, rightly so, but Laban calmly shrugs it off and he says, Well, around here, we do things a bit differently than where you come from. Around here, it's the firstborn who gets the dibs. Ouch. That's got to sting a bit. In Laban, Jacob has met his match. The deceiver has been deceived. What goes around comes around, as the saying goes. Laban does to Jacob what Jacob did to his father. And now Jacob knows what it is to be lied to. He's shattered, angry, frustrated, But does he learn from it? Does he change his ways? It doesn't seem so. He goes on to finish the bridal week with Leah, and then he marries Rachel in exchange for another seven years of labor. How desperate is this guy? It's not a good deal. The average bride price was likely around one to three years. It's a long time. 14 years of labor. Then he finally makes a deal with Laban on how he can get paid once again, Jacob goes to work, scheming his way in how he can get the best of Laban's flock, and somehow it works. He becomes rich, so much so that Laban and Laban's sons become angry with Jacob and blame him for stealing their wealth. It's, it's shifting. And then in Genesis 31:3, God says to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. God reminds Jacob of his promise. And so due to the strained relationship that Jacob has created, he sneaks away into the dark without telling Laban. Of course, Laban finds out and pursues him and catches up with Jacob, but he's warned by God on the way not to harm him. 
And so Laban sends them on their way. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in chapter 32, where Jacob prepares to meet his brother Esau 20 years after he stole the blessing. We'll start in 32, verses 1 to 2. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Now, these verses had totally evaded me in the past. God's angels literally meet him there, like physically, visibly, so much so that Jacob says this is God's camp. The word for camp is like a military encampment. I'm so bummed that we don't get a description of what the angels looked like, but given the context, they probably looked like warriors. God has promised to protect Jacob, and now he makes his guardian angels visible to him. The picture is unreal. God has got this guy. Harm is not coming. And Jacob names the place Mahanai, meaning two camps. There's his camp and God's camp. And if there were ever a time for confidence and safety, this is it. But what does Jacob do? Continues scheming. Verse 3 says, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he instructs them to let Esau know that he's coming and to seek Esau's favor. We'll jump to to verses 6 to 8. When Jacob's messengers returned to him, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well, he thought. If Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. The irony of this passage is that there already were two camps, Jacob's camp and God's camps, but now Jacob separates into another camp, so he has two camps. Fear has blinded him to his favor with God. Fear makes him unable to see the protection God has shown him for the last 20 years and is currently showing him now. Maybe I'm being a little hard on Jacob because he does next what pretty well anyone does when they're in a crisis. You pray with all of your might. Verse nine, then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the, like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Jacob prays earnestly. It's a good prayer. But then there was silence. God doesn't answer his prayer right away. I think God could have said, have you seen those angels over there? But Jacob hears nothing. And then probably after lying around for a little bit restlessly, he comes up with yet another plan, a huge gift in hopes to pacify Esau. 550 animals ought to do it, certainly slow him down anyway. And in verse 21, Jacob sends his gifts on ahead of him, but he himself spends the night in the camp. The narrator invites us to see Jacob's humanity, his struggle between faith and doubt and dealing with the consequences of his actions. His life is one of struggle and frustration because he thinks that he has the power to control the outcome of his life. And every time he strives to do so, conflict ensues. So he tries a little harder and with each increasing grasp, the consequences ramp up. And now it's not only him, but it's his family 
and his wealth that's at stake. You can feel the weight and the gravity of the situation. Verses 22 to 24. That night Jacob got up. He took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions, so Jacob was left alone. There's a lot of getting up and lying back down in this sleepless night for Jacob. And then as he was left alone, we get one of the most perplexing passages in the Bible. From out of nowhere, a mysterious man tackles him. Verse 25. A man wrestled with him until daybreak, and when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched, and as he wrestled, as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. This is kind of like a confession, because Jacob can mean heel grabber or deceiver. Jacob confesses who he is. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. What? God wrestles Jacob all night? It's what the text says. Apart from Jacob, only Moses and Gideon have said to have met God face to face. I'll throw Isaiah in there for all the the Bible trivia nerds out there like myself. Humans aren't supposed to be able to see God's face and live. But God likes to keep us on your toes, you know what I'm saying? So now, I think that this little wrestling match is God's answer to Jacob's prayer from earlier in the chapter. Jacob prays out to God to save him, and we're hoping for a great answer like, fear not, I am your shield. That's the answer uh, Abraham gets in Genesis 15. But here there's silence. So Jacob organized a large gift, sends it ahead of him, leaving him alone in the dark, and then God's answer comes. God shows up physically as a man, and they wrestle for the rest of the night. Okay, tell me God is not playful. You know, when your kids are young, they're upset about something, they get tunnel vision, it's usually over like nothing, but no matter what you try to say, nothing will snap them out of it. Well, sometimes the best thing to do is to grab them and start a tickling match. Parents know this. And as, so not that God tickles Jacob, but essentially he does the same thing. Jacob, you haven't been listening to me your whole life, so I'm just gonna wrestle you down. Bring it on, Jacob. And as we read, Jacob does bring it. The man doesn't overpower Jacob, but like with young children, it's not a fair wrestling match because when God is done, he throws a cheap shot, touches his hip, which wrecks Jacob for the rest of his life. But still Jacob holds on, demanding blessing. Jacob has been grasping for blessing his whole life, but he kept going about it in the wrong way from the wrong person. One theologian says, All these many decades, he's been trying to secure one blessing or another by his own wheeling and dealing, by heel grabbing and backstabbing, by manipulating, conniving, cheating, and deceiving. But now he has recognized the true source of blessing, God, and he rightly clings on to God till he is blessed. And finally, the one who has been chasing blessings all his life has been blessed. 
and blessed by the one who could ultimately give him the blessing that can fill that inner emptiness. And in verse 31, the sun rose upon him. Not just did the sun rise, but it rose upon Jacob. And as St. Augustine has famously said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And God renames Jacob Israel. I've always heard that the name or word Israel means wrestles with God, which is certainly one way to go about it. And throughout Israel's history, they do wrestle with God as Jacob does. But in my study this week, one commentator suggested that the two words God and wrestle means God fights. Or in other words, that God fights for you. And therefore, you do not need to fight for yourself. And by recognizing his dependence on God, Jacob is now able to receive the blessing and promises of God to Abraham's family. It's the story of God's relentless pursuit of broken people. The story of God watching over a man who fails to put his full trust in God. The story of God fulfilling his good purposes through imperfect people just like me and you. Now we'll have a few points of application. And number one, the question for us is this. What are you striving for that God has already given you? God has promised and given us his blessing. Therefore, we don't need to fight for it. Where are you fighting unnecessarily for blessing in your life? Remember, Jesus fought for you. He fought off Satan in the wilderness. He conquered death and came out the other side. He offers us new life, new hope, new blessing. And even if you feel like Leah, not good enough, not smart enough, not whatever enough. If you feel unwanted, God wants you. He proved that by living and dying for us. He wants to bless you. Blessing is a gift or the favor of God. The gift of God, the favor of God. Or as Dallas Willard puts it, blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. As a Christ follower, your identity is secure. You don't need to run around like Jacob. But if you do identify with Jacob, and if you've been searching and longing restlessly for blessing all your life, may I suggest surrendering your heart to Jesus this morning. He is for you. He is seeking you out. Don't wait till he has to tackle you. Grasp onto Jesus. He sees you. He hears you. He knows you. And he desires to walk with you into eternity. To be clear, this doesn't mean your life will be worry or trouble free. Ephesians 1 says our blessings are in the heavenly realms. We first and foremost have spiritual blessings. This doesn't necessarily mean physical blessings. It definitely can, but it doesn't, but not always. The Bible doesn't promise us trouble-free life. It promises, though, that God will be with us even when we don't see it. If you read on in Jacob's story, there's more heartache and crises that come. The baggage from his old life doesn't, or the baggage from his old life does carry into his new reality. But now, there's new power for healing and transformation by the Holy Spirit. And like for Jacob, God's blessing and presence and provision is secure until our dying breath and beyond into eternity. God fights for you. Find your security in his blessing. Now to shift gears a little bit, a word to the fathers and the spiritual dads in the room. Fathers, there is something unique and powerful in your ability to bless your children. 
something unique and powerful in your ability to bless your children. I'm not saying mothers aren't important. Of course they are. And of course, the best and fullest blessing will come from both parents and better yet, a small community of adults. But in all the reading I have done, a blessing, if a blessing from the father is missing, st- statistics show that children will likely search for blessing and affirmation in all the places we don't want them to. A blessing from a father figure seems to be essential to our rootedness as humans. I don't understand it. I don't like it. I can't quite comprehend it, but it just seems to be wired into our humanity. Look back on Jacob's story. In Genesis 25, we learn that Jacob's father Isaac had a taste for wild game, and therefore he loved Esau, the hunter, while Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau, or Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. Parents, yes, we might have our favorites, but don't live like it shows. You know what I'm saying? Jacob grew up without the favor and blessing of his earthly father. And in order to get it, he had to lie and cheat and literally clothe himself with deceit. He stole it, but it wasn't enough. He kept grasping for it until that fateful wrestling match with God. Author, Pastor John Tyson says, we're created for blessing. We cannot function without it. In fact, we are desperate for it. The Bible shows us that when we receive a blessing, it changes the nature of our lives. Working from a place of blessing leads to a completely different life than working for a blessing. So fathers, step up. Find ways to bless your children that will uniquely speak to their unique personalities. It will take intentionality, time, and presence. And if you've missed the boat, don't wait at working to make things right. And ultimately, we fathers are to point our children beyond ourselves to the Father who is eternal and infinitely perfect. While we image God, we are far from perfect. My dad's skills fall far too short, far too often. The blessing we give our children, while extremely important, will never be complete. But we can point them to the one whose is. I love how Luke ends his gospel in chapter 24. It says, Jesus led his disciples out to Bethany, and he lifted his hands and blessed them. And while Jesus was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And it's because of this moment that we see the disciples of Jesus operating from Jesus' blessing and not for Jesus' blessing. They were distributing what they already had. They weren't working out there to earn something new. The same could be said of Jesus' life. He knew he had the Father's blessing from the very beginning, which meant he was free from the oppression of seeking man's applause. So church, let us operate out of the knowledge that we have the Heavenly Father's blessing. We don't need to earn it. We couldn't anyway. It's a gift. So let's receive it and live in light of it, which brings me to our final point. We are blessed to bless others. This is what God told Abraham and Jacob. God said he was blessing them so that they could bless the world. We aren't to keep God's blessing to ourselves, but we're to extend it outwards in whatever way we can with whatever gifts God has given us to share. I'm going to end with a story about a boy born in England in the 1600s. The boy's father died before he was born. He was born premature. His young mother was a widow living in poverty. Then at three years of age, an old priest came and married his young mother on the condition that the boy stayed with his grandparents. Not a solid start. 
As a result, the boy grew up hating his mother, hating the priest, and hating God. He was angry, and he was the worst student in school. His report cards consistently said three things. Lazy, will not learn, good for nothing. Not a good identity piece or blessing. But one day, a new teacher came, John Houston, a devout Christian. He invested in the boy. He gave him extra help after school and believed in him, and even a few years later later helped pay for his university. This boy became one of the greatest scientists of all time. His name, Sir Isaac Newton. The great mathematician, physicist, astronomer, alchemist, and theologian. And this is what his monument says in Westminster Abbey. Intellect close to the divine. Mortals rejoiced that such an ornament of humanity existed. So from lazy, will not learn, good to nothing, good for nothing, to intellect close to the divine, mortals rejoiced that such an ornament of humanity existed. Why? Because one man chose to invest in him and give him and bless him with patience, presence, and persistence. Church, we are blessed to bless others. And who knows what God will do with us and through us. Let me pray. God, I confess that far too often I live like Jacob, grasping for affirmation and blessing when I already have it in you. God, help me. God, help us to see you and your provision for us through all our fears, through all our doubts and pains. God, we praise you for the spiritual blessings you have bestowed upon us. Help us as a church cling to you. Help our fathers to bless their children and help us to bless others out of the blessing we receive from you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This brings us to the Lord's Supper which is a symbol of God's loving patience and grace and favor and blessing towards us. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he had a room full of misfits, his disciples, whom he was patient with, persistent with, whom he gave three years of his presence to. And on his final night, he broke the bread, saying, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Eat and drink in remembrance of me. So church, today, we eat and drink to remember the blessing and the salvation that Jesus has offered us. We no longer need to strive for it. We have it. Let us receive it with thanksgiving today. Just going to give us a few instructions. Uh, When the time comes, you can come up to a station, and a server will rip off a piece of bread and hand it to you. And when they do, there's no need to take it. Don't grasp for it, but just open your hands and receive it. Take the bread and dip it in the cup. Again, no need to dip the whole thing. Don't dip your fingers in there, please. And then once we're done finishing serving, there will be a prayer team by the exit over there for the final song. If you'd like to receive a prayer of blessing or prayer for really anything going on. And then finally, if you've never been blessed by your earthly father, I want you to let the words of the heavenly father bless you right now. This is what God says. You are my daughter. You are my son. I love you. I'm proud of you. I am pleased with you. Receive my blessing. Nothing you have done or experienced can take away my affection for you. And in the words of Isaiah 43:1, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine.